All right. Um, before we even do anything else, let's, let's go to the Lord one more time. God, we do, uh, we just, we, we want to thank you for granting us a new day with new mercy, for giving us the hope of eternal life uh, to help us rise in the morning and face the, the dominating reality that we have so much remaining sin and we live in such a sin-corrupted and sin-fallen world. It can be easy to be overcome with discouragement. So we thank you that we, we, look, we can look past the reality that we contend with and see that a moment is coming um, as you're drawing us now where we will be drawn finally and fully into your presence and abide there forever. We pray that our getting together Sunday by Sunday would be um, a little glimpse of that eternity, that our fellowship would be sweet, uh, that we would be an encouragement to one another because we really do believe the gospel and we want to live and move and breathe like it. So, Holy Spirit, to that end, as we look at James 1, uh, would you please hide me behind the cross and help all of us to behold uh, the truth in your word in a way uh, that doesn't just enable us to identify what other people need to do, but in a way where we identify what, what we need to do. We realize that eternal life is not found in our doing, uh, but that if we are saved and do have the hope of eternal life, we will be doing. So help us to hold all these things in balance and most of all, to cling to Jesus Christ. We pray for this in his beautiful name. Amen. <clears throat> Last time we were together, we looked at verses 22 through 25. And it's such a well-known passage of scripture. It almost feels like a, um, a poor use of time to preach on it because I think, boy, there's no way that anybody who's been a Christian for any length of time hasn't heard uh, a good message on what it means to be doers and not just hearers of the Word of God. Um, but we're committed to an exegetical, expositional preaching process, so whether it feels like it'd be a waste of time or not, we, we slogged our way through it, and because it's so well-known and so practical, on top of familiarity, it's really easy to understand on its face. It's not, you know, we don't need to go into the Greek and Hebrew to understand what James is saying. He even has his own illustration. Oh, if anyone's a hearer only, is like a man who looks in the mirror and immediately forgets what he saw there when he walks away. Um, it, 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 it wasn't tough. So there were really three points. And then I snuck in application at the end without warning anybody. The three points were, first of all, that if somebody hears and doesn't do, they are self-deceived. 
right? So if you believe that you are a Christian and your life is not a reflection of that belief, you're self-deceived. Um, Sub-point to that was that those who are listeners to the scripture and not executors of it are probably forgetful. So there's two things happening at the same time. You're deceiving yourself and you're forgetting anything that you did here to whatever degree you're not consistently putting it into application. And then third, we heard that those who are hearers and doers of the scripture are blessed. Um, not going to retread last week's sermon, but let me, let me say this. If you need a litmus test, and I think probably most of us from time to time do, need some kind of a diagnostic to determine whether or not we are doers of the word. The simplest one I know of found in scripture is found in Luke 6. And it's an equally familiar passage where Jesus says in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And then not do the things that I have said. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground with no foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Now that uh, ultimately has its application on Judgment Day, right? If you hear the gospel and ignore it, when the stream, when the torrent of judgment comes against your house, you're going to fall. If you believe and trust Jesus Christ on judgment day, you're going to be fine because you will be found righteous for his sake, right? But there's application that can be made right now today. And remember, what I'm saying is if you need some kind of a diagnostic of whether or not you are a doer or if you're just a hearer, this is a really good one. The best, in my opinion, simplest in scripture. When trouble comes in your life, what happens in your heart? And it comes for everybody, right? Um, in Psalm 61, David says in verse 8, Trust in him, that's Jesus, at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. In 2 Timothy 1, Paul's writing practical instructions, and he says, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. If you are a doer of the word, it is indicative that there is a spirit at work in you of power, of love, and self-control. If you're not, when trouble comes, you're going to come unglued. Now, this doesn't mean that, you know, people who, who are doing the word are stoic and immovable and indifferent to difficulty. But while we still weep, while we still do get scared, we don't abandon the gospel. 
We don't go, okay, never mind, that's not working. Listen. If you think Christianity's not working for me because your life is hard, you are a hearer only and not a doer. If you think life is hard and hurts, and I'm so grateful I have a friend who sticks closer than a brother, you're a doer. You are somebody who is active in relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't abandon the gospel. The last thing we did last week was we sought to answer, 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 it's a new one, answer a really practical question. What does it even mean to do the word? So we've gone beyond our three points that I gave you in your outline at the beginning, and I just threw this in at no extra charge, because I think we can't take it for granted that anybody knows what it means to be a doer of the word. I know what we think it means. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Right? Don't, don't do drugs, don't drink, you're a doer of the word. Don't have sex outside of marriage, you're a doer of the word. And there's a measure of truth to that. But ultimately... Doing the word of God, Jesus describes in John 6, 28, when, well, 29, the, 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 the Jews ask him in 28, hey, well, what does it mean to do the work of God? And Jesus says in 29, you want to know? I'll tell you. This is the work of God. Believe on him whom he has sent. Now, there's a lot of pronouns in there. So you believe on Jesus whom God the Father has sent. That's how you do the work of God. And then in Romans 15, 13, Paul says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Doing God's word means believing in God's Son. First and foremost. The comfort in affliction, the confidence in uncertain times, and the consolation when your heart is broken is always going to be found in relationship with Jesus Christ. So I don't know of a better litmus test for whether you're self-deceived and forgetful or a blessed doer than Jesus' house built on the rock parable. But James is going to go even press a little harder in 26 and 27. So this is so important. Not because I'm saying it. It's important because it's true. All right? Listen. We're going to move increasingly as we go through James from inward reality to outward conduct. All right? The outward conduct is completely meaningless apart from an inward reality. Don't know how many times I'll say this, it doesn't matter because I can't say it enough for us to really hang on to this truth. Hebrews 11.6, the writer says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So as we look at these next two verses in chapter one, it is critical that you understand this point. Faith then everything else. James 1.26, if anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. 
A religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James takes two paths to help us identify the the authenticity or verify the authenticity of our faith. First, he brings up the mouth again. Second, he brings up love for others. Fair point. We okay with that? Worthless religion or pure and undefiled religion described in these two terms. Um, What do you think made James write this other than the Holy Spirit? Because I'm not convinced that James 1, 26 and 27 forms a comprehensive list of everything involved in pure and undefiled religion. These are just the things he chose to hone in on. So what was going on with old James that he decided on these two things? We'll see if these, these things resonate. Once you've laid down like drunkenness and sexual immorality and robbery and gluttony and racism and drugs and all the other gross and obvious sins, What's left? Well, what's left are the little sins. Right? We, and it's not, I'm not trying to trick anybody to be like, yeah, and then I'm going to get you after you agree with me. <coughs> we would agree that a church that's like marginally healthy, the members aren't engaged in drunken, drug-addled, Festivals of immorality, right? Amen. We would agree that in a church that's healthy-ish, we don't rob banks, get together and plan how to cheat on our taxes, or put together a grand theft auto ring, right? You don't expect to see those kinds of things in a healthy church. You expect to see them in like a weird satanic cult, but not a Christian church. So what's left? You put away all of those grosser, more obvious sins, and what you have left are the the little ones. You know what I see a lot of in church? Little sins. I think what happens is we, we get so comfortable that we've, If you can look back over the landscape of your life and see, man, I used to be that. I used to be a drunk or I used to be an adulterer. And now, look at me. Well put together, not me, you. Well put together, pay my bills on time, right? You get so comfortable that you've put away the grosser sins, you, you kind of start congratulating yourself to a certain degree on your apparent holiness. But then what happens is you start engaging in the little sins all the more. I've never seen a Christian church destroyed by the Grand Theft Auto ring <laughs> within it. But I have seen one, at least one, overgrown with bitterness, resentment, grudge-bearing, and deceit. 
How many of you know the meaning of the word censure? C-E-N-S-U-R-E. Not a word we use commonly. Uh, not in the classic definition. You've probably heard it in terms of like Senate, or Congress, some kind of a governing body. Censure means this. It's an expression of strong disapproval or harsh criticism. That's censure. You ever seen that at church? <laughs> People who are aware of the guilt of their own spirit are most prone to suspect others, and so they nearly always turn to harsh judgment under the guise of their own high standards. And what emanates from that is censure. When sins are small, they're easier to hide, right? What that leads to is hypocrisy. I've got all my sins undercover. They're concealed. You don't know about it. So then when I see you doing something that I think is rotten, I can't tolerate it. Not because I'm offended on behalf of God and his righteousness. I can't tolerate it when I see you doing something gross because you're threatening the veneer that we've all got up. We're all pretending to be spiritual here and you're, you're ruining it. All of our little sins are fine. That we can't abide. What you're doing, disgusting. This is why in churches where religion is all external, the tongues are usually wagging away behind the curtain. James is aware of these facts, so I think in an effort to head hypocrisy off at the pass, he goes after the little sin of the tongue. If anyone thinks he's religious, and he doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this person's religion is worthless. So the subject of self-deception comes up again. Recall from last week that I suggested that the most common form of self-deception is deflationary. As long as I don't look at the evidence, I don't have to deal with the truth. Right? What, what's James doing? I think there's kind of a, like, he's kind of saying, you want to know if your religion is worth anything? Right? Isn't he kind of saying that? Hey, you want to know if your religion is worth anything? Uh, how do you use your mouth? It's not that bridling the tongue purifies you. It's not that controlling your mouth is how you become holy. I mentioned Luke 6, 49 a little while ago. Does anybody remember what I said, Jesus said? Something about a house, rain, waves. Okay, good. If, if you go to Luke 6, go to Luke 6 like you don't believe me. That's how I want you to go there. Do it like this. like Luke 6. People get more enthusiastic when they feel like they're going to catch you. So Luke 6. <laughs> apparently I didn't sleep much last night. So a little, a little out of control here. 6.43. I read you 46 through 49. But just before that. Almost like Luke 6, 43 through 49 is the inverse of the last two sermons we had. 43, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree 
is known by its own fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So if you're harsh with your mouth, it's because you've got a stony heart. And if your heart is hard, what difference does it make? Listen. If your heart is hard, what difference does it make how long it's been since you've had a drink? Remember, Hebrews, a little while ago, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So if your heart's hard, stony, unchanged by the gospel, what difference does it make how long it's been since you slept around? What difference does it make if you're not stealing cars? What difference does it make if you're faithful to your spouse, if your heart's hard? Now, everybody will be like, well, practically, your marriage will be intact. You won't be in prison. You're like, you can give me a list. But what does it make on the day of judgment? What difference does it make on the day of judgment? And what difference does it make in God's eyes if your heart's hard, and you know it is, because your tongue is just going bananas behind the scenes when nobody's watching? Or at least... When nobody whose opinion you're worried about is watching. And you're like different person when you're at church versus when you're not. Until you find somebody else at church you can be real with because they like to do this too. If that's you, what difference does it make if you pay your taxes? When the storm of judgment comes, your house is going to crumble. So James goes after the tongue because it's the speaker from which the music of your heart emanates. What do you say? What kinds of things do you whisper about others? And while we're all, I hope, not really, but kind of hope we're all now to the point where we're kind of, we're like, maybe I'm not saved. If you're not a little bit like that, you're for sure self-deceived because nobody in here is, is just nailing it in regards to the use of the tongue. You're not. I, we just don't know where you're not nailing it, but you do. It's a bit unsettling when the Bible, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, begins to pierce past joint and marrow and get to the real issue. Am I an effectual doer, or am I a hearer only? Well, what's your mouth like? <laughs> Love it. I mean, sometimes, sometimes God puts the period. <laughs> I couldn't have paid enough money to make that moment happen. <laughs> I'm never going to forget that as long as I live. <laughs> Don't be. So verse 27, James says, religion 
that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. This is, this is from my perspective, logical flow, all right? A mouth which is out of control betrays a heart that is unmanaged by the Holy Spirit. A mouth which is out of control betrays a heart which is unmanaged by the Holy Spirit. In church, there are certain things which simply cannot be tolerated. Right? You can't sleep around, smoke crack, binge drink, rip people off, and so on. So the church easily attracts people who find those behaviors detestable. Does that make sense? If your heart isn't bent toward alcohol, you are going to love it at church. Because it's not like a thing that, like Christians don't get together and have drinking contests. Well, unless you're reformed. (laughs) They do. If you've got a preference for classical morality and miss the good old days when America was about hard work Divorce wasn't an option, and kids knew how to be respectful. Well, you're going to love it at church. Because we are about hard work. We're about a high moral standard. We think kids should be respectful, right? So people come to church, and they form these morality clubs. Kids are told to pull their pants up and sit up straight. Don't wear tights like their pants. Wives are told to submit to their husbands. Husbands are told to be the spiritual leader. And purity culture reigns because perversion is hidden away where it belongs. Now, if you are poor, you'll never be a deacon. If you're rough around the edges, you'll be talked about behind your back. If your marriage is a mess because your husband is a drunk, you'll be told to submit and shamed for not suffering quietly enough. If your marriage is a mess because your wife is out wilding out, you'll be quietly talked about behind your back as a man who doesn't rule his own household well. If your kids are wild, you'll never serve in that church, but nobody will say anything to your face about it. Because what's going on in the background is mouths are running. Everyone in the inner circle knows who the reprobates are. Everyone in the inside circle knows who's threatening the purity culture. Everyone on the inside circle knows who you can and cannot talk to on Sunday morning. Everyone on the inside circle knows because everyone on the inside circle has an unbridled Oh, they have wives that submit, husbands that lead, and good credit. But these are whitewashed tombs full of rotting dead men's bones. You want to know how to tell if religion is pure and undefiled? What does that church actually do? Is there any local ministry to the most vulnerable? Does she engage with the lost community around her? Does she have an externally facing benevolence fund? Does she welcome messy people with messy lives? Or are all of her missions efforts conveniently uh, across an ocean somewhere? 
That is an expression of what she's made up of. Now guess where, look around. Guess where we're headed? Constantly. And if about half of us aren't holding the line and leaning back as hard as we can into pure and undefiled religion, this church will be just as useless and just as spiritually inbred as the worst cults in America. Because this is the tendency of the human heart. As long as I know I'm better than you, I'm fine. So James is piercing the bubble here. Bridle your tongue and love someone else. That's what Jesus did. And that's where purity culture and moralistic deism simply cannot deliver. What is that? Something back there? Oh, the coffee maker. All right. You leave it plugged in. It's just like, is a bomb going to go off? <laughs> Bridle your tongue and love somebody else is not something that you can mandate with threats against poor morality. Boy, it, listen, it, it bothers me that all I have to do is complain a little bit and five people jump up. Like, I am not the Pope here, folks. <laughs> Tell me to get over it, and I will. Promise you that. Bridle your tongue and love somebody else is not something that purity culture or moralistic deism can deliver. That's what Jesus did. You want to know how I know? I mean, other than all four Gospels systematically demonstrating that purity culture was busy hating Jesus because he didn't join them in tongue-wagging against the sinners and instead was out healing sinners' broken bodies and broken hearts. Here's how I know. What, if you're a Christian, what did Jesus do for you? Didn't he meet you in the middle of your mess didn't he embrace you while you were still smelling of rot? Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When did Jesus die for you? Well, he died for you before you existed. Before your body had even been, been formed, he hung on the cross, saw you in your mess, and died willingly to redeem you from that mess. And what did he say? When Jesus saved you in the midst of your mess, did he say, now get up and get cleaned up? You should be ashamed of yourself. You know better. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Man, what if the church did that? 
What did Jesus promise? Okay, this is a stretch. I'm going to go Old Testament, but it's my favorite promise. Contextually, here's where it happens. Here's where Jesus promises. Okay? Israel, towards the end of Deuteronomy, they're about to enter the promised land. Right? And God says, listen, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. This is what God says to Israel before they enter the promised land. And what did Israel do? Did they just nail it? Or did they get up over the first hill and go, you know what? Never mind. We are like grasshoppers in their sight. We're going to go back to Egypt where we had pots of meat. Did God leave them and forsake them? No, he kept his promise. It is far more difficult to love someone who can't do anything for you than it is to love someone who can reciprocate. It's far easier to run your mouth about someone's moral failure with an eye toward removing them to keep the fellowship pure than it is to confront their moral failure with an eye toward restoring them so that we can keep the moral culture intact. I am not going to have a church that winks at sin and pretends like moral failure is fine because, well, we're all doing the best we can. Absolutely not. But neither am I going to run people out the door because they're not perfect. This has got to be a place where it's okay to be broken. In process. Learning what it means to follow Jesus. James is confronting religious hypocrisy because nothing does more damage to the church than this. These two verses, 26 and 27, in my humble, look, I hung all my seminary degrees on the wall this week while you guys were out. In my humble opinion, these two verses belong with chapter 2, which is just a dissertation on religious hypocrisy. What's the takeaway for us? Two things. First, here's a way to test the authenticity of your faith. Are you a self-deceived, forgetful hearer or an effectual, blessed doer? Well, how's your mouth? And how are you doing with loving others? Second, as a church, we're going to point our faces out and engage what's broken. And that should generate a little bit of nervousness in any Christian audience when the pastor says that. Because what, I'm, what I've just conjured up in your mind is images of you at second in Maine with a sandwich board on passing out tracks, right? And that's not at all what I have in mind. I have in mind us individually cultivating relationships with a broken and lost and dying world in the hope that and in an effort to share the gospel with people that need Jesus. My plan in this regard is still being laid before God and other men for counsel. I'm not here to you know, unveil Vision 2023 or you know, whatever. This is... But we're, we're going to make sure that we've got the lights pointed out so people can see us 
We've had a nice season in this little room with uh, familiar faces, kind of figuring out how to relate to one another from uh, various walks of life. We've had a nice over a year now of just, just getting to know one another, worshiping together, figuring out budget and constitution. Like it's been, it's been wonderful, but you know what? That's not our mission. And if we are going to impact the culture around us by being effectual, blessed doers, we're going to need God to show us mercy. Because our tendency will always be in the direction of hypocritical religion. Left to ourselves, I mean, that's what we do. How many times have you been like, okay, glad nobody saw that. Glad nobody heard that. Well, somebody did see that. Somebody did hear that. So the real question is this, and this is the one question I want you to answer for me this week. Um, It should be easy to answer. You don't have to tell me. Just answer it for yourself on my behalf this week. Are you, are you in a relationship with Jesus Christ? If you're not, you'll know because of what your mouth is doing and who you're loving. If you love mainly yourself, it'll sound like it. If you're in relationship with Jesus Christ, he is pulling that rope. He is leaning into holiness and sometimes dragging you kicking and screaming along with him, right? If you're not in relationship with Christ, you can clean yourself up, you can make yourself look quite morally upright and then starve to death with the bread of life in your hands. So may we be a church upon whom God is pouring out mercy, directing our paths, keeping us from hypocritical religion. Let's pray. Father, I imagine, not because I'm such a profound and great preacher, but because I'm pretty sure this is how things work, I imagine that the devil is quite excited to snatch this word out of our minds and hearts. So I don't know what distraction awaits us as we close in song and eventually depart this place. But I know that these things are important. So my prayer, my desperate plea, is that you would keep us mindful of what we've heard from your word here today. Pray that you would flush away anything that shouldn't have been said, anything that's just of me, and that you would give stickiness and burr to your word and uh, that it would change the way we think and the way that we act. Help us, Jesus. Hold us. Wrap us in your arms and show us that you love us so that our hearts and that therefore our lives might be changed. We pray in your beautiful name. Amen. Amen.